It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some really interesting stories on the docket this week. I'm reading here charges against an Nanaimo camper for pointing a firearm stayed as a result of further police investigation. There's a lot there, so let's unpack it. Indeed, there is a lot to unpack. In this, this case, people have probably heard about. Uh, it dates back to March of this year, uh, and it's from Nanaimo. And the background is that a business owner in Nanaimo had his uh, uh, business premises broken into, things stolen. Uh, a couple of days after that, a friend of the business owner believed that he saw one of the things that was stolen in the break-in at the side of the road next to a, a homeless encampment in Nanaimo. Uh, now, <clears throat> rather than phoning the police to do something about that, uh, it would appear that the Nanaimo businessman collected up a posse of friends uh, to go and deal with the issue himself. Yes. Uh, as he originally reported it, uh, the business owner said he went there with three friends unarmed to uh, retrieve the stolen property. Um, and uh, there was a video of some of the interaction which took place. Uh, ultimately, after a chaotic interaction at this homeless encampment, uh, the business owner wound up being shot in the stomach uh, and was uh, eventually taken for uh, medical treatment. Happily, it sounds like he was okay at the end of the day following some surgery. One of the campers uh, was arrested, and he was charged with pointing a firearm uh, by the crowd. Uh, now, the interesting, a couple of interesting things there. Um, first of all, in order to approve a charge, the charge approval standard is twofold. First of all, does the Crown conclude there's a substantial likelihood of conviction? And then is it in the public interest to proceed? So the Crown initially concluded, based on the initial police investigation, uh, that that charge of pointing a firearm uh, met the charge approval standard. And so they approved it. However, uh, as sometimes happens, the Crown asked the police to conduct further investigation with respect to the identity of the person charged. I guess they were concerned about the strength of the evidence to establish that the person they had charged was that the person who pointed the firearm. Hmm. And so the uh, RCMP went off, and indeed, they conducted further investigation. The, uh, they found some evidence which was indeed helpful at confirming the identity of the uh, person who pointed the firearm. However, <laughs> the further investigation cast quite serious doubt on the uh, version of events that the business owner uh, had provided to the police. Uh, the further uh, police investigation revealed that rather than the business owner showing up unarmed with three other people, the business owner, in fact, showed up with between a total of seven and eight people uh, who were armed with things, including, according to the police investigation, a bat or large broomstick, a two-by-four, uh, the business owner, uh, a metal asp baton, it sounds like. Wow. Uh, the business owner, they seem to have dressed up like characters out of Mad Max, uh, with one person wearing a motorcycle helmet, Another one wearing, uh, or the business owner and another wearing protective gear with hardened knuckle gloves. Wow. Uh, and the uh, further investigation and careful review of the video showed the business owner, uh, contrary to his claim that he was unarmed, 
uh, striking a camper on the head with a baton. Oh, dear. Uh, and then there was evidence that the business owner had thrown one of the campers and the camper's girlfriend down an embankment. And the business owner had threatened to get a gun and shoot the campers. Okay. Uh, and it was in that context that the campers pointed the gun and a paintball gun uh, at the business owner. And the business owner wound up getting shot in the stomach. Yes. Uh, and so it's in that very different context, right, of the business ah. owner now armed with a group posse of seven oh. armed, physically assaulting the campers, that the Crown had to assess, does this meet the charge approval standard? Now, to further complicate matters, perhaps having had it revealed that the story he told was not accurate, the business owners stopped cooperating with the police and wouldn't provide them any further information. Perhaps, I should say, out of a concern uh, that that videotape of him hitting a camper on the head with a baton uh, might put him in some jeopardy of being charged. Uh, and so the way the Crown has to analyze this, right, uh, because that additional evidence raised uh, an issue about whether the a uh, person who eventually shot the business owner in the stomach was acting in self-defense. Uh, and so the Crown has to analyze that, and I should say this is interesting for most people, yeah. where there is uh, a basis to believe that self-defense might apply, as would be the case here. Mm -hmm. The way that's analyzed is not whether the accused person could prove that they were acting in self-defense. The way that would work at a trial is the Crown would need to prove that the accused was not acting in self-defense. Hmm. That's the function of the fact you're presumed to be innocent and the burden of proof's on the Crown, okay. right? Okay. And that it's not an assault if you're using force to protect yourself or someone else. And so in the context of what the police discovered in fact happened here with this group of seven or eight men... Uh, wearing uh, protective equipment, carrying weapons, two-by-fours, batons, bat, uh, throwing people down the hill, uh, hitting one of the campers on the head with a baton who was taken to hospital as a result of that. In, and he found that that was unprovoked. It was the, the group of seven or eight people, including the business owner, the, the investigation revealed appeared to be the aggressors uh, doing that uh, to the people, the homeless campers. Hmm. And so it's in that context that the Crown would have to assess whether they could prove beyond all reasonable doubt uh, that the shooting of the uh, armed uh, business owner uh, did not constitute self-defense, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and one of the principles there is that Self-defense, the sort of force used for self-defense, it has to be broadly proportionate to the uh, harm or the risk, right? It's like, you know, if somebody was coming up and poking you in the arm, you couldn't shoot them to no, stop yourself no. from being poked. Yeah. That's over the top, right? Yeah. But there's also a principle that force used in self-defense doesn't need to be measured with nicety, right? Huh. Because the reality is that these things happen on the quick, right? Yes, yep. When somebody is clubbing somebody over the head with a baton, metal baton, right? You may not have time to sit there and think, well, gee, what's the least force I could use to stop 
the baton beating. Indeed. You know, might, might, might I be able to do that with a rock? That might work. I don't know if I can throw it that far. Uh, well, there he goes. He's hitting the person again. <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh, but no, right. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Right. You don't, you don't need to sit there and do the most careful calculation because how could you, right? It's sort of the idea is, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I can't do anything else. This person appears to be throwing people down the embankment and hitting them on the head with a baton. Okay, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, that In that context, it might well be, uh, I think the weapon in question was a twenty two. I can't say like a small caliber rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, shooting the person in the stomach might be proportionate to the harm caused if you're hitting somebody on the head with a metal baton and throwing people down an embankment, uh, taking into account other factors such as the uh, large number of people uh, that were there uh, and uh, how they were armed and what they were doing. Uh, and so in all of that context, and this is another important thing to remember, is that the the Crown's obligation to do that charge approval assessment is not a one-time thing. They don't say, well, the initial report said it was look, look good, <laughs> and we approved it, and they don't just keep running, right? Yeah. If additional evidence is gathered by the police, as was the case here, uh, that just fundamentally changes the assessment as to whether there's any substantial likelihood of conviction. Uh, the Crown's charge approval obligation is an ongoing one. And so with the benefit of the additional evidence the police gathered about the uh, business owner not being truthful, the larger number of people, the fact that they were armed, uh, the fact that uh, they were throwing people down the embankment, uh, and the fact that the business owner uh, was on video hitting one of the campers on the head with a metal baton, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> with that additional information, uh, the uh, Crown came to the conclusion that there was no longer any substantial likelihood of conviction, and the charge of pointing the firearm uh, was stayed. Um, the other interesting thing about that is Crown has authority uh, to, and it's not a requirement, but they have authority to provide a public clear statement about the reason uh, for doing what they did, hmm. right? Because this case developed some public attention. Oh, right? yes, I recall uh, when it and, first happened, yeah. And so, and interestingly, after this decision, there were still some people providing, perhaps that didn't have the context that I've just provided, from the clear statement the Crown released about what the police investigation revealed, hmm. that were still suggesting somehow it was uh, uh, inexplicable uh, that mm. uh, the uh, charge of pointing the firearm wasn't proceeding, right? Mm. Uh, and so that's this is a good example of why it is that this kind of an explanation uh, is a valuable exercise uh, so that uh, people who are sort of following this in a general way aren't left somehow with the impression that there was some bizarre and unsupported decision made not to continue with the prosecution, right? Because when you just tell somebody... A business owner was shot in the stomach while trying to retrieve his stolen property, (laughs) right? You think, well, that's outrageous. (laughs) You can't go around shooting people. But it's only when you find out the business owner was apparently misleading the police, armed, hitting people, and there with a posse (laughs) dressed up like uh, characters from Mad Max, uh, that you might conclude this case was going nowhere. Uh, And so the result of it uh, was exactly what we saw here stay. And we'll need to wait and see whether there's any consequence for the business owner. He is, after all, on video, hitting somebody on the head with a metal baton. Uh, And so 
that is pretty serious conduct, even if after that you wound up getting shot in the stomach. Hmm. Uh, and so the case may or may not be over, but at least the prosecution of the person with the twenty two rifle is over. Uh, and so that's the uh, update on what's uh, happening with the shooting at the encampment in Nanaimo. And I suppose if there's any broad takeaway here, if you have your stuff stolen, you think you figured out where it is, don't gather a posse and dress up like a movie character. Phone the police, yeah, uh, and yeah. perhaps you won't get shot, uh, and you won't wind up on videotape hitting somebody over the head with a baton. Neither of those are really very satisfactory conclusions. Certainly. Uh, legally, I'm just curious, and I, I don't recall if you actually covered this, but if, if the explanation to the investigators, to the police, had been more complete, let's say, and more forthright, and say, yeah, you know what, I was frustrated. So we got some armor, I had a pole, we went in there, yes, they were, they were doing stuff, and then they shot me. Would the case have gone differently? It might have had a different character to it, mm-hmm. but I dare say, because of course, self-defense is going to be analyzed from the perspective of the accused person. Okay. And so here you've got somebody who there's no evidence they had anything to do with the stolen property. Mm-hmm. They're just some camper, right? I see. And so if you're some person camping in the forest and a gang of seven or eight armed men show up, begin throwing people down the hill, hitting people over the head... Uh, with weapons, right? I see. From yeah. your perspective, right? Yeah. The response of stop that, right? Or I'm going to shoot you in the stomach may be completely reasonable. Yeah. Um, and so it would be analyzed from the perspective of the accused person, um, right? Would it be reasonable in those circumstances to use force to prevent an assault or a continuation of an assault perpetrated by a group of seven or eight armed men uh, dressed up in protective gear with two-by-fours, batons, and a baseball bat uh, who are already in the process of attacking people. Yeah, uh, and so it. in that context, I, I dare say, had, the, uh, had that been presented in the most forthright fashion, <laughs> the initial police response to the business person might have been, sir, you're under arrest. <laughs> okay. You can't okay. show up with an ass baton and hit some guy over the head. Uh, because you're angry about your stolen property. You've just assaulted a random person in the forest. Moreover, you can't throw people down an embankment. No. (laughs) Turn around, put your hands behind your back, you're coming with me. And that may still be how this thing plays out. We'll have to wait and see. This may not be the final uh, word here, but it is important that people have all this context, lest they be left with the impression uh, that somehow... Uh, the Crown has just unreasonably decided not to continue uh, with the uh, prosecution of the person uh, who had the twenty two rifle. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Always interesting, legally speaking. We'll return right after this commercial break. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Next couple of stories, Michael, both have to do with the government of British Columbia and various associations representing lawyers. Set this up for us. <laughs> Indeed, it would seem that the province of British Columbia has now managed to get itself embroiled in litigation with virtually all of the lawyers working for the provincial government. Not a very positive state of affairs, I should say, from a a, a labor relations point of view. No. Uh, The first of these pieces of litigation uh, is a piece of litigation started by the province against Crown Council. And uh, the background there is that for... Uh, First of all, for a number of years, there's been tension between the province and Crown over their contract and rates of pay. 
which, as we talked about before, got linked to how much provincial court judges were making. Uh, and then for now more than a decade, every time there's a recommended change to provincial court judges' salaries, the province uh, refuses to implement that, probably because of the impact it would have on paying crown. That's the big background. The specific piece of uh, litigation that the province has just initiated against Crown uh, involves the conduct of bail hearings on weekends. That's sort of a topical thing. Uh, And there's been a long history to that. It used to be in larger places, including Victoria, that Crown would come in at least on Saturdays in person to conduct charge approval and bail hearings for people arrested like on Friday night. Pretty busy time, right? Yeah. Um, and um, that that seemed to work pretty well. It was done in person, but there was then a shift to having bail hearings conducted uh, by telephone out of a justice center in Vancouver uh, for a variety of reasons, including cost. And for a number of years, the way it worked is they had police trying to conduct the bail hearings without the benefit of Crown on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. Well, all day Saturday and all day Sunday, in fact. Uh, And that was really mixed in terms of how well that worked, because, frankly, the police aren't trained to conduct bail hearings. And so for the same reason, you would not want to have Crown Council armed with guns and told to go and tackle anyone alleged to have robbed a bank or store on the weekend. You probably don't want to ask police to conduct legal proceedings, right? Some might have done fine, maybe some experienced people. Uh, but others, it was really pretty unsatisfactory. And I recall back at that time, this is now several years ago, mm-hmm. some of those were just not conducted well because they didn't know what the legal issues were or how to present the evidence at the bail hearing. Mm-hmm. And so, aptly, uh, there was a move back to asking Crown to cover those things or having Crown cover those things on the weekends. And so that seemed to right the ship a little bit. Uh, but the ongoing labor dispute between the Crown Council Association, who represents Crown, and the provincial government uh, have led now to litigation uh, over that process and how that's to happen. Um, And there had been for a few years an agreement between Crown uh, and the the Crown Council Association and the provincial government over how Crown were going to get to be assigned to do that. You know, who's working Saturday, Sunday, and the long weekend, right? Who's working on Christmas? This kind of thing, right? You get an extra day off if you work on the Saturday Christmas or whatever it might be. That's sort of the stuff of labor agreements, right? Mm, yes. Uh, but the province has now taken the position that they need not negotiate with Crown Council on that issue, and they are free to dictate how they are to conduct these things and who's to do them. That obviously didn't go over well, and it led to arbitration. Uh, about whether the provincial government can unilaterally direct Crown and how those weekend bail hearings are to be covered. Uh, The provincial government lost the arbitration. The arbitrator ruled that the provincial government does indeed need to negotiate with the Crown Council Association over those kinds of issues, like who's covering it and how many people are there and what if they're on vacation and all the natural stuff that would be potential issues there. Uh, and the provincial government really doesn't like the fact they've been ordered to go and negotiate, and so they've decided to start a court challenge trying to uh, get an injunction to stop the order of the arbitrator so that they don't have to negotiate uh, those conditions with the Crown Council Association. Uh, And so that's now going to be how that's going to percolate away. We'll have to wait and see whether they get a, a temporary injunction about that, 
uh, and whether they're able to unilaterally order Crown to be doing those things, which will be an interesting legal issue. We'll wait and see how that goes. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, but boy, that just doesn't seem like a very good way to manage uh, the people you need doing an important job, uh, taking the position that you can unilaterally uh, order them uh, to do things without engaging in any form of negotiation. Um, so that's half the lawyers in the province or the provincial government lawyers, right? The Crown Council. Yeah. And then the other piece of litigation, which was just filed uh, two days ago, uh, is litigation uh, on behalf of the British Columbia Government Lawyers Association. And that's a organization that would represent essentially all the lawyers who aren't Crown Counsel, who work for the provincial government, all the civil lawyers. And the background of that is that the uh, civil lawyers voted overwhelmingly to join the British Columbia Government Lawyers Association to have them as their union. Uh, and they did so in accordance with the uh, procedures the uh, NDP government uh, introduced where they can sign cards to join the union. They, people dutifully signed up. Uh, and then that organization uh, filed an application uh, to become the union for the lawyers who weren't part of the Crown Council Association. The government's response to that was to pass another piece of legislation called Bill 5 that forced all of those lawyers into a union they didn't want to be part of, and in fact didn't want them, called the Professional Employees Association. Yes. And so this piece of litigation is a piece of litigation claiming that that decision to force all the civil lawyers to join a union they didn't want to join and which didn't want them uh, is contrary to, it is alleged, at least in the, this uh, piece of litigation, that that violates Section 2D of the Charter, which is freedom of association. Hmm. And that sort of makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, a union is going to be an organization that employees want to be part of and who wants the employees to be part of it. And here the government's decided they would rather have those lawyers in that organization rather than their own, like the Crown Council Association. Perhaps the government's concluded it will be easier to get what they want from the Professional Employees Association rather than perhaps the more militant BC Government Lawyers Association uh, that those lawyers wanted to join. And so by that process, we now managed to have uh, uh, litigation going on between the provincial government and virtually every lawyer who works for the provincial government. Uh, so we can uh, keep an eye on that and see how that one plays out along with that issue uh, involving the Crown. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday, pleasure as always until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too.